Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 285, and today's guest is Anna Palmer, general partner at Flybridge. It goes without saying, but we need more capital going towards female-founded companies. While we still have a long way to go, there has been some progress in this regard with dedicated funds like X-Factor Ventures. The fund, which is focused on pre-seed and seed investments, was launched in 2017 by Flybridge with Anna as a co-founder with a strategy of having women founders invest in other women founders. Fast forward, X-Factor now has a portfolio that consists of over 70 companies that are all founded by women and an investment team of successful female founders who have started companies like Away, Figs, and others. After two startups, which were both acquired, Anna transitioned to a role as a full-time venture capitalist by joining the Flybridge team in 2020 as a general partner. She is focused on making investments in sectors such as Commerce 3.0, marketplaces, mobile, consumer, and e-commerce. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like examples of community-driven companies like Chief and how they are leveraging this model as a strategic advantage, plus the details of the laptop sticker test at Flybridge, Anna's background story and her transition from law to entrepreneurship, all the details on Fashion Project, an online designer clothing donation company, and a great story of how a pitch contest saved the company, how Anna made the transition to investing full-time, and the process for making an investment, various reasons why a VC might not fund your company, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. This week's episode is sponsored by MarketMuse, a content intelligence platform that sets the standard for content quality. Their AI-powered software enables companies to create predictably better content at scale that increases traffic and engagement, improves productivity, and drives revenue. Get more out of your content with packages starting at just $0 a month. That's free. Plus, you can get 20% off the MarketMuse standard plan by using our code FIZZ20, that's F-I-Z-Z-2-0, at checkout. Go to marketmuse.com to get started. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Anna. Anna, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you because um, before we jumped on this podcast, we're actually talking and I'm pretty sure our paths have crossed just from the Boston tech scene, Um, you know, the companies you've built, now you're an investor, but I don't think we've really talked in great detail. So I was super excited to talk to you because you've done so much throughout your career. Uh, But before we get into the conversation about your background and the companies and investing that you're doing, um, one of the things that you've been working really hard at uh, as an investor is uh, you know having this interest in community-driven companies, and that is a topic that has been top of mind for lots of lots of founders. You know, you hear different ways to build companies. Some could be product-led growth. You know, community-led companies is something that has been very current. So, since that's a uh, very strong interest of yours, I thought that'd be a good starting point. So, talk about that method as it relates to being an entrepreneur and building a company with that kind of foundation in mind? And what are some examples of companies that do that exceptionally well? We've seen examples, I think, in a variety of different industries as of late. Uh, if you think of like Airbnb and travel, Poshmark and e-commerce, platforms like Discord, et cetera, I think the community thread is one now that has become pretty prevalent in a lot of the growth and large-scale companies that we're seeing. Uh, to give you two examples in our portfolio that I think are pretty interesting. So First one, if you look at the company Chief, which is a private membership network connecting, supporting women executives, 
there's been a lot of iterations of companies that have said, we want to help you with your career. We're going to give you coaching. We're going to give you training. But I think what Chief created was something really unique and special because they realized early on that it wasn't just about what people were saying in the room. It was actually who was alongside of you in that journey. And because they were so careful in how they crafted that community and making those connections, it made the foundation for something that was really special and ultimately allowed them to grow. So that's one example where you see companies where you have community truly at the core. Another one that I like that is probably a little bit more off the beaten path and maybe not quite as obvious if you just looked at it on the outside is we have a company called Car Edge. And how they started is they had a YouTube channel that was Zach, the founder, and his dad, who used to manage a car dealership, just talking about the car buying process. And his dad is a bit of a character and so built up a large following because of that. And all of a sudden, the community they created around this idea and their personalities and the advice that they were giving led it to where they were selling merchandise with his slogans on it. So you'd see people out in the wild at Trader Joe's or wherever wearing these sweatshirts that said, if it's taxable, it's negotiable. And at Flybridge, we call that the laptop sticker test, which is if you're willing to wear a brand and identify with the company publicly such that other people can see you identify and then identify themselves as a member of that community, that it's really the foundation of something pretty powerful. And so that's that's why we love community-driven companies. I think there's a marketing efficiency there, ultimately leads to more customer loyalty. But if you get those mechanics right, it can be a really special driver of growth in the company. What are some of the pitfalls though? Because there are founders that are like trying to wedge it into their business and we're going to be community-led. This is going to be awesome. Like what are some of the pitfalls that you've seen? I think the biggest pitfall is just assuming that you can put a Slack channel or you throw somebody in a Discord or something and all of a sudden you have a community. But giving people a reason to talk to each other is not necessarily just a community. It's you're just a platform until something special happens. And so I think to avoid that pitfall, really thinking about the why of why is somebody there? What do they want to get out of this? And then watching to see how the people who are interacting with your brand and your company or are already organically connecting with each other. And then you want to foster that connection in a way that is organic. So for Car Edge, it wouldn't have worked to put people in these small pods and have them talk about buying cars because none of them were experts. They were there to get knowledge and advice. But it did work to say, hey, I saw this expert. I want to now can shout to the rooftops how I bought my car. So I'll put that on a sweatshirt and hopefully you'll come talk to me about it. Um, and so you have to make sure that match is organic between what somebody is using the company for and what they want to get out of it. And then how you facilitate those connections in that community. I love the laptop sticker test. That's a, that's a great analogy. Cause that's so true that absolutely, if you're willing to put your sticker on your laptop, that's associating with the brand and that goes miles. All right, let's rewind the clock. So let's talk about your background. So where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? I grew up in Pekin, Illinois, which is about in the center of the state, surrounded by farmland on all sides. And as a child, I was just a constant builder. I think I probably, now that I'm a parent, I realized how much anxiety I probably gave my parents because (laughs) I was out in the backyard, tying up zip lines and I'm a seven or eight year old, I'd strap myself in and be pretty confident that, that thing was going to follow me down into the tree on the other side of the yard. Um, but I was always thinking about how can I take the things around me and build something else or accomplish some sort of goal. And so I think that thread stayed with me all the way through to 
my ultimate career. I think if you looked at me as a third grader, you probably could see this coming pretty quickly down the line. And how about uh, school? Where did you go to college and what did you study there? I went to undergrad at Eureka College, which I am maybe the only 18-year-old to pick your college based on congressional district. (laughs) At the time, I thought I was going into... I thought I was going into politics and I had already gotten involved working for my congressman when I was in high school. And I felt like if I could have four more years in that district to build my name recognition, by the time I graduated, I would be in a good place to potentially run for office. Um, It ultimately career-wise did not work out that way, but I had a wonderful experience and coming from that background, the college is very small. I graduated with 93 other kids. Um, and so it was also kind of this scrappy build your own, figure it out mentality. And then from there, I went to Harvard Law, obviously a different experience on size and, and type of school, um, thinking that I wanted to do that politics route. But at Harvard, got interested in entrepreneurship and venture capital and ultimately ended starting up my first company out of that. Okay, but so you studied law. So I'm assuming you were entering Harvard to think you were going to pursue that career path. So what what did you experience there and, and how did you end up evolving to entrepreneurship? What I realized was I really enjoyed the startup pieces of campaigning and politics. So if you think about running a political campaign, it's probably one of the few other instances where you have to raise money from friends and family. You talk about a mission, you work super, super hard for some finite period of time. And at the end of it all, you could lose everything and it might not work out. And then you have to pick yourself up and go out and do it again. And I love this idea though of organizing people around a mission and being able to create change. And when I got to Harvard Law, thinking I was gonna go that route, it was pretty quickly evident that if you truly wanted to create change, the easiest way to do that is through the private sector. So go out, create the vision that you have for the company and you know, ultimately maybe that can influence policy down the line, but it's much easier to do that privately than it is to wait for the law and community organizing and all that stuff to follow. You can really just kind of take that mental and, and push it forward. And like you did, you know, um, some internships in law firms too, right? So you, you got a taste of it, but it was like, uh, like from what I gathered, this is listening to other podcasts. You, like you, you didn't, even, you didn't take the bar exam. So it was very evident that you were like, this is not the path for me. Yeah, I had a defining moment when I was sitting with a job offer from a law firm in Chicago, which would have been phenomenal. And I was just in the early stages of getting Fashion Project, my first company, off the ground. And I knew if I took the bar, then if things got hard, which I assumed they would, it would be easy for me to jump to a cushy, well-defined path in the city that I already loved. And so for better or for worse, even if Maybe everyone else thought I was crazy for it. Um, the application for the bar was due at midnight that night. And I sat in front of my computer for about five hours trying to hit send. And I just couldn't hit send because I needed to just see what would happen with the company and with the vision. And so ended up closing my laptop and burning that bridge. So I'd have to fight for it. And I did. And it worked out. I don't know if I'd recommend that for everybody as a career path tactic. But I think that that mentality of there isn't a fallback plan. You have to make your company work uh, really lend itself well for us and the early days of the company. I, I love stories like that, though, just taking that bold leap of faith because you had that opportunity in front of you for that 
cushy law firm that I'm sure was going to pay you exceptionally well, but you're like, you know what? It's not for me. I'm going to go pursue my dream. And, you know, we're going to talk about your career path moving forward. And it's worked out really, really well. So, all right, let's talk about fashion project. So, um, how did you meet your co-founder and, and like, what was the company all about? Christine was in my section at law school. So we knew each other because of that. And the original emphasis of fashion project was this idea that stemmed from tax class when my professor was talking about in-kind clothing donation and how many billions of dollars were taken as deductions on people's tax returns, but ultimately how little of that actually funnels through to the charity organizations because Salvation Armies and Goodwills of the World aren't set up to be selling you know, $12,000 or made bags. They're easy for t-shirts, but much harder if you're trying to authenticate those items. And so we built Fashion Project as this e-commerce platform to solve that problem. So you could go on, you could donate anything out of your closet. We would authenticate it. You could get your tax receipt and then you could choose any 501c3 to direct the proceeds to once the item sold. So it was really about maximizing that value, both in the item and making sure the donation matched what the charity actually received. So I would, as a consumer, I would send my apparel to you. You would appraise it and sell it and deliver it mm-hmm. to the end buyer. Correct. Yeah. So, so that's a complex business model. Like there's a lot to it. <laughs> <laughs> this is thread uh, yeah, up. Talk about- this is- Rent the runway, thread up, obviously not rentals, but I mean, it, there's a lot to this business. Yeah. I mean, talk about uh, getting into something where you just don't know how hard it is, but you have blind faith as an entrepreneur. It's the equivalent of trying to run Nordstrom when you don't know what's coming in every day, right? And you have to go and convince people to give you the inventory to then sell. Uh, and so it was remarkably complex, but I think... I am thankful for it because it gave me this lens across a lot of different pieces of supply chain and inventory. And right now, I mean, we'll talk about it later, I think, but my investment thesis is the intersection of climate and commerce. And so how does fashion and waste and all of that have overlay with environmental impact? And so tough business for sure, but you know, baptism by fire, I learned a lot as an entrepreneur and got a taste of a lot of different industries pretty quickly. Well, let's talk about it, like where you, you took the business because it did exit, but you know you raised you went through TechStars, you raised capital. So just kind of give an overview of, of where you took the business. Yeah, so we ultimately ended up raising like a little over thirteen million or so for the company. Um, I do want to tell one story though, if that's okay. Of yeah, just please. Kind of what that journey was like along the way, because I think it's important from an entrepreneur perspective to realize this. Um, so there was a moment early on in the history before Techstars where we had gotten a commitment from an angel group for a very large check at the time. And we had already hired six people, you know, company was off and running and the expectation that this was coming through. And the about six days or so before we'd have to lay everybody off when this check was supposed to arrive, I had gotten an email in my inbox out of the blue that said, never mind. We're, we're going a different direction. No, thank you. We're done. Um, And I got that right as I was getting ready to go out the door to the ultralight pitch competition here in Boston. And I still remember I closed my computer. I sat on the couch for a second. The last thing I wanted to do was go pitch the company because it meant at this moment, I thought I was done, you know, laying off Mm -hmm. my employees. We're like, we're not anything yet. 
And I remember talking to my co-founder, she's like, just go. Like, if you can just get yourself there, we'll figure it out tomorrow, just go. And so I went, which obviously I was not necessarily excited about doing that at that moment in time, but I went and I turned it on as a prayer and said, you know, going to do this. And as one of the judges was Reed from Techstars, who saw me pitch. And afterwards he said, have you applied to Techstars? This was on a Thursday, deadline was Sunday. And he's like, we'll fast track you, just apply. And so I applied, we ended up getting into the program and with Techstars comes a check. And it timing wise meant that we were essentially getting that check right before we'd have to have laid off the six people we just hired and we were off to the races and the company was fine. But had I still sat on the couch and not gone, my entire career trajectory would be different because fashion projects would have never probably raised when I got into tech stars, like we would have been done before we started, which is, I tell that story because I think for any entrepreneur listening to this podcast, if you ever have that moment where you're like, I absolutely do not want to do this. This is the last thing I want to do. It's the world is ending. If you can just pick yourself up and go, sometimes you never know what's going to come out of that. So yeah, you created and then at the end of that, you know, yeah, we ended up partnering with Nordstrom and Neiman Marcus and Lord and Taylor and a bunch of folks to run their charity programs and giving money back to 2000 or so organizations in 36 countries around the world. So always, always go, I guess is my advice on that. Exactly. Yeah. Cause if you just sat on the couch and sulked and poor, poor me, bad day and didn't go, the, like you said, the trajectory would have been completely, completely different. So I think that is a great lesson learned because I think every entrepreneur has those moments many times. So you got to keep, keep plugging. So what did you do after fashion project? Um, so after fashion project, so we got acquired by a company called Union Fifth, which um, we're essentially doing the same type of work as what fashion project was. So I stayed with the team and the acquirer for a little bit. And then concurrently with that, I actually started X Factor Ventures in partnership with Flybridge. And so I was working with them even before the GP role now. And the, the mission of X Factor was to create something where we put checkbooks in the hands of up and coming female entrepreneurs. So all of our partners were women who had raised series A and beyond, and then also turned around and helped those women invest in the next generation of up and coming women, female founded companies. And so well, version one of date, that was kind of, happening. I want to put a date on this, just the timestamp, because this was, uh, you know, a very early thinking like there's funds that are funding female founders, but this was one of the first ones I can remember that was focused exclusively on having women write checks to other founders that are women. Yeah. So this was back in 2016. So we launched the fund about two weeks before all of the media attention started happening on Me Too and spotlighting gender inequity and startups. And before that conversation even happened, X Factor had gotten launched about two weeks before. So um, definitely early in that. And I was excited to see then this, as you pointed out, this swell of new funds come out and also address that need. Uh, and so it's been now we're on our third fund of X Factor. And we have a lot of peer funds also going after and helping back more amazing women, which is great. It's so amazing. And I, I okay, I want to come back to X Factor because there's more to talk about with your startup career. And then we're going to circle back to X Factor <laughs> than to Flybridge. It's a 
there's so much to talk about. When I was creating my notes, I'm like, okay, this could be like a three hour podcast, but (laughs) so anyway, so let's talk about what you did, you know, next, as far as your, you know, your next startup. Yeah. Um, so after that, I played around a little bit with this idea of the company called Wandered Mile. I don't know if I would even call it a company, but the concept was, could you make it easy to shop from the physical stores around you? Which keep in mind, this is pre-COVID, which is interesting. That then once COVID happened and all of a sudden people didn't want to necessarily go into the physical store, but you wanted to be able to get the things out of them. Um, I think timing-wise, we were just pretty early on that cycle. The inventory systems weren't what they needed to be. Those numbers weren't really accurate. And so never really launched it. It just wasn't, it wasn't going to work, but did a lot of discovery around that idea. And through that process though, had reconnected with somebody I'd worked with on Fashion Project, Vanessa, who ultimately became my co-founder on my next company, Doe, which is a marketplace to connect amazing women who were building products that we wanted to help get into the hands of consumers and physical stores. And so that became, through that journey, the next true company that we went out and launched. Um, And the initial idea of that was it was going to be a wholesale marketplace. So we wanted to connect those makers with ultimately you know, stores and um, shops that would source them. Then COVID hit right before we went to launch that one and it became impossible to walk into a physical store. And so we pivoted it to a consumer model where you had a membership and you could go out and you could shop all of these things. Um, but then ultimately sold it to international market centers, which is a big wholesale provider platform. Got it. Okay. All right. So back to your experience as an investor. So with X Factor, you had already highlighted Chief as a community-driven company, which yes, they have absolutely nailed that. I mean, if there was a company that has absolutely nailed uh, community-driven, it's Chief. Um, you were the one of the first investors in that company through X Factor, right? From what I gathered, I was. Um, so. Carolyn from Chief, one of the founders, she was briefly my COO at Fashion Project. So we knew oh, each other okay. from working together. And I still remember she was probably the most talented person I've ever worked with in my entire life, such that we were considering even moving the whole company to New York just to keep her. So that tells you the level of caliber of what Carolyn was. Um, and so when she was starting a new thing, I think my comment was, it didn't even matter what the thing was, just take my money. I will I will back you in a heartbeat. And it turned out that she was building something incredible. So I'm, I'm glad she ended up building what she built. Um, but it was really fun to be along that ride with her as a founder after getting to work with her a little bit on my first company. At what point did you see an opportunity to become a uh, an investor full-time, like a, a venture capitalist? So... For me, the journey following Doe is that I realized I enjoyed this idea that I had seen through X Factor, which is if you're doing your job well as an investor, you can help shape the future of a lot of different industries, a lot of different founders. You can be, I guess, the difference between the coach and on the field. After being in the trenches for a while, I think I was ready to step over and say, let's take everything I learned. And now I just want to be there to assist. And if I get the chance to help these entrepreneurs create their dreams the same way that I was able to create mine, like what is more rewarding than that? And so 
think just timing wise, it, it made sense as a career trajectory. I felt like I finally had seen enough and known enough that I could be helpful on the other side. All right. So how long have you been working as a, a venture capitalist at Flybridge now, like full time? A little over two years. But in the span of two years, a lot has happened. When I started, it was right in that frenzy of venture where all of a sudden you meet a company on a Monday and you were having to decide whether or not you gave them a term sheet by Wednesday or Thursday. And so the speed of which things were happening, partially because of Zoom, everyone was in their houses. It was easy to connect with a lot of different investors. And so you could get a lot of things done in a very short period of time. But that was an interesting learning curve because it meant you had to assess whether or not you wanted to work with that person very, very quickly. Whereas I think my natural inclination, especially now after being on the entrepreneur side, I really believe that the personality match and like how you interact with the people around the table and your board matters a lot. And it's hard to do that if you've only had, you know, collectively maybe three hours of conversation over a period of three days to know how that's going to play out long-term. And so it was an interesting learning moment in venture of how do you how do you do all that and assess all that in such a short period of time? And now that we're coming out of it, it's been nice to finally get to sit back a little bit and say, all right, what does this job mean when you have a little bit more ability to put you know, diligence and thought and you know, figure out the personal relationships and lay that foundation truly correctly? Um, and so, yeah, to your point, I've seen, I've seen the acceleration and I've seen the deceleration now, but uh, I'm happy that Hopefully we'll float out somewhere in the middle. Yeah. And I've said this on other podcasts, like it's just, things are getting back to normal. <laughs> like, well, 2021 was out of control. 2022, things started to correct. And as we're in Q1 of 23, you know, it's it, it, a correction never feels good. Like I, I feel bad every time I jumped on LinkedIn and see all the layoffs, I, you know, incredible amount of empathy for people going through this correction is just not fun, but it's getting back to basics of a business being built on foundational principles of a great product or service that has value that someone's going to spend money on and people are going to buy it. And then you're looking at the metrics of a financial health of the business and not over hiring and just growing based on all costs and using you know venture capital to fund that growth and get the next round. It just wasn't sustainable. So, um, you know, having been through a couple of cycles, I'm like, we're just going to get back to normal. And that's uh, a thing that hurts right now, but it's going to be a good thing in the long run. I, I will admit that the the initial entry into venture when the market was so crazy, my friends who were still entrepreneurs were like, oh, you, know, you must be, you can just hang back and relax a little bit now and you know have, have this cushy job on the other side. Meanwhile, we're all now working like 90 hour weeks where... Mm-hmm. Um, so I hope your thesis is right, that it just all goes back to, to normal. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about Flybridge, uh, just, you know, for maybe some people that aren't familiar with the, the firm and the fund and, uh, so Flybridge, we are a seed stage venture firm. So we have our seed fund, which is our core. And then we also have an opportunity fund, which is our fund to follow along in companies once they're at series B, series C beyond, um, we are generalist as a firm, but do really like, to your point, companies that are powered by a community. And then each partner underneath us has some level of specialty and things that we're particularly interested in. So my investment thesis is the intersection of climate and commerce. So what are some examples of companies that would 
uh, you know, you know, fit your parameters, you know, like what, are, what are you ideally targeting? Yeah. So examples for me personally, it would be, I have a company called floor found, which is a e-commerce solution for oversized items. So if you think about if you've ever ordered a couch and maybe the couch has come and you decided for some reason you don't want to keep the couch, trying to return that thing is an absolute beast to the point where companies are like, why don't you just keep it? And so what Floorfound does is it takes all of those items, makes it easy for those to go back and then appear in a white label solution on the e-commerce websites. So if you had bought that through you know, your favorite D2C furniture company, you could go on and see open box items and you could buy those as an option such that that couch doesn't end up in a landfill somewhere. And so it's an interesting model that can solve some of the logistics and supply chain challenges, but also has this environmental impact where it's keeping thousands and thousands of tons of furniture from just ending up as waste. Um, so that's an example. Uh, I have an, another return solution called Returnalize that identifies problems right at the start of if there's a shoe that for some reason was manufactured that's two sizes too small and it's getting returned over and over and over again, they'll flag that for the retailer and we'll say, hey, there's something wrong. You should notify the customer they need to order two sizes up because this thing runs weird um, and allows people to make those changes such that then it reduces the overall amount of shipping and waste that happens back and forth between the retailer and the customer. So those would be examples. Also things like an electronic, uh, I have electric autonomous rail company based out of St. Louis that is creating rail cars that move by themselves. So that way you don't have to wait for a giant locomotive to pull the thing and it's much more carbon efficient. So it runs the gamut of logistics, supply chain, all the way through fast solutions for e-com. Very, very cool. So, so what's the best way to get on your radar then? Like what, like how do you get a, a you know, a first meeting with you? Um, easiest way is probably email or you can message me on LinkedIn either way. And then when you, okay, so I get a hold of you. You're like, sure. Happy to meet up. Like what, um, what do you expect out of that first meeting? So my goal at the first meeting is to figure out, is it a fit enough that we should continue the conversation? So if you think of the first meeting true as a movie teaser, it's like, you know, now do we actually want to see the movie and do we want to dig in there or do we just both agree that maybe it's not a fit for timing or sector or whatever that is. Um, and so that's my goal in the first meeting is to figure that out. And that goes both ways. So it's not just me deciding of the entrepreneur, do I want to dig in and invest in you? It's also, I'd say on the other side of the entrepreneur deciding, am I somebody that can add value on their cap table? And so to simplify, I know it's more complex than this, but you would look at, okay, you know, what's the stage, right? Cause if it's later stage, then obviously that's a waste of time. Cause you're doing, you know, early stage investing it's a uh, market size. If it's not a large enough market, then you're not going to be getting a venture returnable investment or uh, return out of it. Third would be the team. I assume fourth would be the idea. I'm not saying in that order. I'm just saying four parameters, anything else that I missed that you're kind of just honing in on to see if it's worth the next meeting or time. So I would underneath that team bucket, say what I'm looking for is founder market fit, but in a pretty unique way, which is I want to think about what is going to be the hardest part of this company from zero to one. Because once you get beyond the Series A, you can hire to fill in the gaps, but it's really like that brute force 
willing this into existence period that the founder has to be able to do. And so whatever the skill set of the founder is needs to match whatever the hardest piece of that business is. And so I'll give you the example. The reason why I invested in FloorFound was because Chris had this super interesting connection between he was a salesperson and incredible sales guy with connections across all these different e-com companies from one of his past careers. But he also had worked in a supply chain and logistics company. And so he knew all the big warehousing players, which to haul something large from point A to point B and make those relationships and actually get you know, the big logistics providers to pay attention to you to put that thing on the truck was going to be hard. And so he just personally had this unique ability to solve the two hardest problems of the company from zero to one. And so that for me, like if it was any other founder trying to start this business, I probably wouldn't have done it. But it was his unique founder fit to that zero to one problem that made it interesting. And so that's what I'm assessing in team is not just like broadly, are these people qualified? Are they smart? It's do they have that skill set of zero to one, whatever that hard part is, can they solve it? That's a great point. Yeah. I mean, why is this entrepreneur uniquely qualified to solve this problem? What's their passion? What's driving them to do it? Not just like, I kind of just was brainstorming with my other founder. We're whiteboarding. We thought maybe this is an interesting sector to tackle. It's like, yeah. No, that's not the founder you want to back. All right. So, um, you know, you have your criteria, you go through multiple meetings with an entrepreneur. Where do you finally get to the point where you're going to write that term sheet in a normal market, right? What's the decision-making process that finally gets you there where, okay, this is an investment that I, I, I'd like to pursue. So the way that funnel usually works is first meeting, think, oh, this is interesting. It falls in my wheelhouse. I want to do a little bit more work on it between first meeting and second meeting and probably doing some level of background research. And that's either getting more familiar with certain parts of the industry. That's asking people I know who are smart in that industry, um, doing something there to validate. Yes. This thing actually is what it looks like. So it is, and I want to dig in even further. So then second meeting, ask all the other questions that I have. Um, from that point with our team, at least we, usually do some level of background diligence. So that's when you start asking about the founders, who knows them, what do people say, um, get to know them as people a little bit more. And then ultimately you're probably meeting one to two of my other partners throughout that process. And then once we get through that, it's really all those big questions have been checked and we write an investment memo that lays out the case why we think this is going to be a massive company and then have you in to talk to the entire partnership where we ask more questions and kind of prosecute the the company from all the different angles of the different partners and their experience and then at the end of that discuss and decide if that's an investment that we choose to do so that process can go anywhere from three days like we were talking about in the previous market conditions to i think in normalized times that's realistically probably to two and a half weeks, sometimes three, depending on you know, what's going on in the background of that. All right. So you uh, had some uh, recent exciting news. So you are now a member of the uh, board of directors at the New England Venture Capital Association. So talk about the NEVCA and what your role is there now. So as a board member, I spend time thinking about the broader New England ecosystem and how do we support the investors and the entrepreneur community that is here? Um, and so, you know, some of that is lobbying and thinking about policy. Some of that is 
how do we continue to put New England on the map as a place that you want to go and build your company? And then third part of that is from our investor community, how do you continue to build connections and support and resources across that group? So we continue to have a robust ecosystem of funding that we can attract those amazing entrepreneurs back here or keep them here after they graduate. The thing that I appreciate about the New England Venture Capitalist Association, and I can't speak of other like organizations throughout the country, maybe they're similar, but they're always thinking about diversity. And um, you know, one of your partners, Jeff Busgang, was one of the core founders of Hack Diversity. I mean, just what the NEVCA has done is extraordinary in so many different aspects uh, to really help propel really important factors of not just building a company and getting funded, but important factors like diversity and equity and inclusion. Yeah. I think to your point, what makes that unique is it's, it's truly core to the board and to the organization. And I mean, Jeff, yeah, one of my partners has done just an amazing job of putting that at the forefront and making sure that New England venture community is something that everybody feels included and welcome. And how do we continue to push the envelope on that? And um, I think the, the NEBCA has a big role to play there. All right. It goes without saying, we need more women writing checks for startups. So what advice would you give to other women that are interested in pursuing a career in venture capital? I think if you're already a founder and you're looking to make that transition, the thing that I would recommend is either start writing incredibly small checks on your own. It doesn't matter how big that check is, just as long as you're putting some skin in the game of saying, I want to back this company or that company. I think there's the level of learning and discipline that comes from that, that you're going to get better and better and better each time that you're making that assessment. And eventually after you do your five or 10 of those, I think you'll have a track record that you can start pulling from and other people can look to so it's a way of honing your skills. Uh, alongside of that, there's a lot of really great training programs. So whether that's joining one of the scout programs that funds have, whether that's contacting me and asking about X Factor Ventures, we're always looking for new partners and future funds. And so that's an option as well. Uh, but finding some way to be connected to a venture fund through one of those programs becomes pretty helpful because you can have mentors there that can help along the journey. Uh, and also maybe look at the organization all raised. They're doing a great job at thinking about how do you get more women into venture and run a fair number of programs related to that that could be really helpful as well. Okay, so take that a step further. So we need more women entrepreneurs and women that are raising capital. So what advice would you give to you know female founders on starting a company and raising capital? Starting a company, I would say do it. It's one of the greatest jobs in the entire world. And to get a chance to go in and build your vision, to go and finance that and raise money. I think my big advice there would be to truly swing for the fences. I think there's there's a tendency sometimes to be a little bit more conservative on where you think the company can go or you know, be absolutely rock solid of you know, I don't want to, I don't want to overshoot. I don't want to be bombastic. I think as a female founder, finding the mix between confidence and being you know, optimistic of if you truly believe that big vision, then sell that big vision. Um, not to the point where you're obviously being deceptive, but I would say put that big vision out there and be really confident about that and know that I think the venture world now, even though we still have a lot of work to do, I think we recognize great companies and 
as a female founder, if you can go and put that vision out there and you swing for the fences, I think people will react to that now. And it just, I mean, it takes a lot of knocking on doors to find the right investor sometimes. So just remember to, to keep at it. And that's not something that's necessarily you know, personal on you or the company. Like, just keep going and that tenacity matters. And that's across all founders, not just female. And I think that's a great point. You just nailed on a, like a topic that I don't know if it's really discussed enough. I know it's known out there, but raising capital is hard. And if you look at it from the point of view of where you're sitting, you know, how many companies are you going to look at over the course of the year to whittle down that to what are you going to make? Like two, three investments a year, right? So the, the venture capitalists are only writing a select few number of checks, but they're evaluating hundreds of companies or whatever the metric is. So you got to find that right fit and not just get discouraged. You got to keep at it. And what we were talking about earlier with the, how the market's changed, I think that's a healthy thing too, because when you receive uh, an investment from a VC, it is like a marriage. You're going to be committed to maybe a 10-year span. So if you make that decision like a shotgun wedding in three months, or sorry, three days of a term sheet, that's uh, that's taking a long bet very quickly. So that makes sense. I think you you bring up a really good point on that, which I didn't I didn't truly appreciate as an entrepreneur. I think whenever I got a note from an investor, I took that as my company wasn't good enough. Maybe I didn't pitch well enough. Like there was always some reason as to why that note was happening. And now being on the other side of it, to your point, I mean, there's just all of these other things that you don't see that are going on of like, oh, is it that you're hitting the investor right before they're prepping for their annual meeting? So maybe they could be really interested, but they're super distracted. Or, you know, for some reason that they have, four other meetings stacked after yours and it was great, but like now they got pulled in a bunch of other directions. And next thing you know, it's three days later and like, you know, things have fallen to the wayside. Um, there's all of these reasons as to why maybe just that, like at that exact moment that things did not align. Um, but I mean, none of those are reflections on how successful that company is going to be. And you know, eventually you'll find the right match. And that's what we're looking for on our side as well. So what are three apps you can't live without? Uh, three apps I can't live without. So Rent the Runway. So I'll continue with my sustainable fashion theme nice. for sure. Um, Masterclass. I really like mm. that one. I am interested in learning about a lot of different things. And so love to just have that that night. And then the third one, which I will I will use now that I have a two-year-old is CBS Kids. I absolutely, if you're asking what I truly cannot live without, that is, that is the one because it's the Elmo in your pocket as we're traveling. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. What, uh, what about a, a good book or podcast recommendation? Um, most recent book that I found really interesting is there's a book called Moonshots that's talking about how companies can innovate and ultimately create the different trajectory if you're kind of stuck where you are um, or how that innovation happens within a startup that then allows the startup to ultimately outcompete you know, some of the big guys. And there's a lot of really interesting learnings in that, not just about innovation itself, but culturally, what do you do once your company reaches a certain level of scale to ensure that you can keep leveling up? And so if you're a founder, even if you're at series A or series B level, I think it's worth a read. All right. So outside of work, you know, you're busy as an investor, 
you have a family, so you're very busy, but what do you like to do for fun outside of those parameters? You know, you talked about masterclass. Maybe this is some of the masterclass uh, courses that you're taking. I am a avid soccer fan. And so outside of work, I am following soccer. I am a member of the American Outlaws. So I'm one of those people who dress up and follow the team around standing and chanting in the supporter section. Uh, and so most likely you can find me you know, watching soccer or ultimately you know, sometimes at games tearing my heart out. So who what, who do you root for? Ooh, uh, so U.S. men's team, women's team for sure. Sure. Um, and then you have, I mean, I'm local. You have to say the Revs. And then yeah. also as a league, uh, National Women's Soccer League. So there's a variety of teams there and working on a couple of interesting projects related to that. Um, and so I'm a big, big fan of women's soccer. Cool. Well, Anna, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story. Obviously, all the great work you've done as a founder and the tremendous work you're doing as an investor and all the great advice for other entrepreneurs to follow. Sounds great. Thank you for having me. This has been fantastic. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.